I don't remember the name of the grubby preschool classmate who told me that I was, quote, crazy, twirling his finger in an erratic clockwise ellipses on the side of his toe head, but I think he had a pretty good line on my personal style. It gets lonely there when there's no one there to share. You can shake it away. It wasn't that I couldn't perceive reality in a stable and consistent manner, nor was it some truly pitiful deformity, the likes of which children seek out like fish sticks and sugared cereal. The point of his twirling prestidigitation was obvious. I am not like the others, and I shouldn't get too comfortable. Being an outsider among the finger paint set was distressing, but I was at least partially responsible for extending the distance between us. Being outside of others means losing purchase on any sort of shared world, and being doomed to float endlessly through an infinite, soundless vacuum. Like a more interesting version of the 2013 Sandra Bullock film, Gravity. It is with great regret that I can never recommend certain books to my friends despite my enjoyment of them. The gleaming verisimilitude of an outstanding work of literature is tarnished with each successive doctor's lazy recommendation. Yet no amount of sanctimonious bromides from rattlesnake shrinks can disturb Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, a towering accomplishment of Holocaust literature. In his tale of surviving the camps and creating a school of psychotherapy based on his experiences there, Frankl cites the cruelly afflicted Friedrich Nietzsche, who says that if a person has a why, they can endure almost any how. The hope Frankl offers in that dictum sustains the possibility of instilling meaning into one's life. The logotherapy that Frankl developed is closely related to existential psychotherapy and is in turn very similar to so-called psychodynamic psychotherapy. Any therapeutic approach which is not exclusively behavioralist, that is, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, so-called evidence-based medicine, is the progeny instead of this specific area of post-Freudian thought. This is extremely important for understanding the only extant forms of therapy that actually benefit victims of trauma. That is, more, more simply, uh, successful psychotherapy must be oriented to the patient's self. As one of Frantz Fanon's patients, a survivor of torture like all of his patients, put it, who am I in reality? The psychiatrist and post-colonial luminary had to grapple with patients who were unable to conjure even the most primitive self-image. It is not the egoistic, inward, antisocial self that Fanon sought to help cultivate in his patients. On the contrary, Fanon and other sprouts pushing through the Freudian topsoil were focused on the individual's volition as a member of society. Merely understanding the details and context of one's pestilential memories is inadequate to the task of helping the patient navigate their own place in lived reality. As Jean-Paul Sartre and others have put it, every moment of our life is created by our perceptions and preconceptions. Thus, there is no ideal fixed point in our psychological development that can be targeted and successfully bombarded with psychoanalytic autoeroticism. As a child, I was usually occupied with a book, or with the endless labor of pulling flaming arrows out of some corner of my bloated carcass. 
I had practically nothing in the way of emotional reserves or even a sense of restraint regarding the exercise of my First Amendment rights. My disorganized and violently defensive reaction to my peers' taunting was inevitable and painful for both parties. At the time, I needed to imagine that I had a quantum of influence on the world, even when I knew I was doomed at those hypocritical ex-hippie Seattle schools. But on closer inspection, I tend to think of those years in light of a point that the existential psychotherapist Irvin Yalom once made about fate. One's heroic attitude toward one's fate is meaningful in itself, in much the same way that Camus regarded, quote, prideful rebellion as the human being's final response to absurdity. My perfectly sound powers of critical deduction were denied at every turn, and I used to conceive this period in my life as merely Kafkaesque. I won't stray from that formulation much, but Camus and his contemporaries' idea of grinding against the millstone of futility seems more fitting lately. Being right just doesn't matter in school. In fact, it doesn't really seem to matter anywhere. My own prideful rebellion was a last resort, a nuclear option in a world of mutually assured destruction. What does the puddle say to the man who steps on him? I was drowning in depression and non-diegetic stressors, and was fast becoming resigned to diversifying the marine food supply in the Seattle metro area. Today I woke up fully intending to contribute to society somehow, but somewhere along the way, probably when it became apparent that even swallowing the tiniest sip of water was akin to swallowing a bowl full of broken light bulbs, I got put off track. Uh, the hot mass in the general vicinity of my right lower salivary gland is always most unbearable first thing in the morning, but time and amoxicillin seem to be taking care of it, so there's that. I feel as though I've spent every second of the last two years begging an unreachable deity for the smallest of breaks. Proving that God is indeed a fantasy for the feeble-minded, I have not been afforded even one month of sustained normality. But I haven't ruled out the possibility of a callous, malignant, celestial master taunting and toying with his creation. Seems fairly realistic, actually. It's hard to believe that these troubles didn't actually start with last year's epic MS relapse, but it's as good a place to begin the story as any. That event was followed shortly after by the neuropathic pain crisis that left me howling in agony and begging for a speedy death. Then there was my boss accusing me of misusing my FMLA and malingering. I never was sure about how that one worked, given that I'd already used every millisecond of my paid time off. One morning, shortly after the Komodo Dragon's characteristic yet still appalling performance as a bully with borderline personality disorder, I decided to take my dog for a walk at Hillsdale Park, as I'd done a dozen times before. The dragon's behavior had instigated an unprecedentedly debilitating PTSD flashback. Earlier that day, I had met with my psychiatrist, Dr. Evil, and informed her of my intention to quit taking benzodiazepines. Chief among my reasons for dumping Ativan was its growing reputation for encouraging dementia and demented behavior. 
true to her moniker, Dr. Evil was not happy about the idea, which was further understandable given the permissive attitude toward chemical restraint evinced by the Department of Psychiatry's devotion to simple cures. Despite this spray of bad faith from a purportedly legitimate psychiatrist, I knew ditching the goofballs was unquestionably the right choice for me. So that day I had been trying to detox from the drugs and thus far hadn't actually experienced anything especially unpleasant. Nothing like when I once accidentally ran out of Xanax five or six years ago. But starting around 10.30 a.m., my brain halted the production of new memories. Blackout 2017 began in the parking lot of a Beaverton strip mall. I do remember a cop pulling me over. I remember urinating all over my black cotton shorts. But after that, it doesn't come back into focus until around 3 a.m. when my terrified mother found me at Tuolity Hospital, a good 20 miles west of my apartment. In addition to processing such a deeply disturbing incident, I've been tasked with defending myself in an Oregon courtroom. From the police report, I can see that my blood alcohol level was 0.00. According to the terse and overconfident jarhead's telling, I informed the cops of every single medication I take accurately. And my lawyer assures me that once the labs are in and it's established that I wasn't deliberately intoxicated at the time, the case will probably be dismissed. Later this March, one week to the day after that particular incident, I went to my neurologist and complained of intense nausea. It's a common MS symptom that an innocuous drug called Zofran can easily and cheaply address. Given that I was so close to my next six-month infusion of a drug called rituximab, uh, it wasn't surprising to me that I was becoming symptomatic again. Yet Dr. Brittle and his supervisor, Dr. Baffling, flatly refused to write a prescription for this very well-understood and completely harmless, to my knowledge, medication. I left the exam room a kettle of madness, and I left Brittle's going-away gift on the vinyl and paper table and never got to see his reaction to the fancy shoe maintenance kit I got for the fussy graduating fellow who's moving back to the snowy Midwest. It was Dr. Evil who threw me in the nuthouse, though. While I can't deny that my desperation and anger could reasonably have been construed as suicidality, I've found that merely keeping the patient alive trumps examining and treating the etiology of such strong feelings. That is, she, a psychiatrist, can't be bothered to care for an extremely acute case of suicidal ideation. Dr. Evil also said, with feigned compassion, that she would come visit me in the pen and consult with the attending psychiatrist. That I would go to the brand new Unity Lockup, adjacent to Portland's Moda Center. She told me that she was worried about me. What a fool I was to believe her. But she left me little choice. And so I, I, I was lying down on the small mattress in my cell at OHSU Hospital with my phone, which they hadn't taken away from me for some reason, clutched desperately in my hand, dialing over and over again the number for the clinic to try and contact the creature who abandoned me to that Spartan windowless cement room. To my knowledge, she had absolutely no interest in my case after she sicked the public safety officers on me. 
Before I was discharged from the decrepit, underfunded Cedar Hills loony bin, I was informed that my suspicions had merit. Dr. Evil was firing me as a patient. It was hard to hear that. If no one had come to pick me up, I would have taken an Uber to the interstate bridge overlooking the mighty Columbia River. Uh, who am I kidding? I would have taken a lift. I've talked about many of these events already and on this nascent show, but the list continues and includes such new hits as birthday abscess slash emergency surgery and severe tire damage. The worst part about that last one is it ruined my dog's day, too. Well, I think we've come to the end of Astrocytes 3. Uh, there have been some new developments. Um, I think Astrocytes 5 or 6 will be live from New York. And next year, soon, every following show will be from New York. But as it stands, you can probably understand why I'm trying just to grapple with the idea that there will ever be a doctor who I can rely on even a little bit again. So uh, Astrocytes is produced by Talking Into Microphones. Please email us at astrocytespod at gmail.com. Okay, shut up. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back soon.